Hey, good morning, church. How are we this morning? Doesn't sound like you're too excited to be here. Are you excited to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. Well, I am really grateful to be back with you. Uh, My family has had a vacation planned for several months. We went on our first cruise uh, this past week uh, with the kids and uh, we went to Mexico. We were in Mexico last Sunday morning. Um, It was just a great time of refreshment. But uh, I'm I'm grateful to be here this morning and I'm really grateful to be uh, with you and to be able to share the word of God today. If, If you've not been with us for the past few weeks, we are in a sermon series entitled The Cross Speaks. And we're looking at some of of the final words of Jesus Christ on the cross. And last week, I'm grateful for Brother Eric who brought a word about the, the thieves and, and the criminals that were, that were hung beside Jesus and Jesus' words there. And so today we're going to be, we're going to be looking at yet another set of uh, Jesus' final words. But, but before we do, I'm wondering if any of you have ever seen anything like this. Anybody have one of these by, by any chance? This one, I see one person. This is a giant water jug. It actually holds 128 fluid ounces, right? And, and the interesting thing about this water bottle is that it has markers along the side of it for times of the day, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., 7 p.m., and 9 p.m. It's a reminder that you need to be staying hydrated, And in addition to the time markers, there are motivational words. 7 a.m. it says, good morning. 9 a.m., hydrate yourself. 11 a.m., remember your goal. 1 p.m., keep chugging. 3 p.m., feeling awesome. 5 p.m., don't give up. 7 p.m., almost finished. And 9 p.m., you did it. Now, last fall, a few people on my team bought some of these off of Amazon, and I felt inspired to do the same because I'm a goal-driven person. I I like challenges, and and if I have this sitting on my desk and there's a timeline and I haven't met that time, it bothers me, so I've got to start drinking to keep up with it. And when I did it, and I've got to be honest, I've kind of slacked off over the past couple of months. When I was drinking water like I should be drinking water and using this, it was fantastic. I, I felt good about my, my health. I, I didn't get headaches. I, I, I stayed hydrated. Imagine that. The only frustrating thing about, about drinking this, uh, using this water jug, in addition to having to tote the thing around from one meeting to another, is that I might as well draw some more lines on it for potty breaks because I find myself in the restroom an awful lot throughout the day. I wonder this morning if you've ever been thirsty. Have you ever been, I mean, thirsty, like really thirsty, almost to the edge of dehydration? I'm sure if you're like me, you've, you've had those moments when, when you realize you probably haven't been drinking enough water throughout the day, and you, you pinch your fingers, and maybe the, the elasticity in your skin doesn't quite bounce back the way it should. Or you pinch your fingernail, right, and the, the coloration doesn't come back as quickly as it should. Maybe you're like me, and your body tells you you're thirsty, and you're starting to get dehydrated because you get a headache, right? The problem is by the time you realize that you're thirsty, it's too late already, right? You should have been drinking long before that. But I wonder if you've ever thirsted for something other than liquid. Has your soul ever yearned for something that you can't draw from a faucet, that you can't drink from a bottle, Has your heart ever desired something to quench a desire that comes from somewhere deep down inside? Has your spirit 
ever craved something that nothing on this earth can satisfy? Have you ever really, really been thirsty? This morning as we continue in this series, we're going to hear a word of longing from Jesus Christ. A word that portrays desire, but a word that portrays more than just physical desire. One of Jesus' last words before he died on the cross, if we will listen to it, might elicit a call from the Holy Spirit asking us today, how thirsty are we? Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're going to read, be reading verses 28 through 30, only three verses today. We're going to return to verse 30 next week and look at Jesus' very last words on the cross. So we're not actually going to, to talk about verse 30 this morning, but I want to read it in the entirety of these particular three verses so that we understand the context of the words that we're going to look at today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you join me for a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we, as we contemplate and we draw near once again to the cross of Calvary, we find ourselves hearing these words from Jesus, I thirst. And we find ourselves knowing that there, there's, there's more than just a physical thirst involved. There was more than just a desire for H2O. There's something else going on here. And Jesus is using these words as an opportunity to teach us today. And the Holy Spirit is using these words to speak to our souls. And to stir within us a desire, a longing for something else. And so I ask today that as we study your word and as we, as we go through this passage and, and, and we look at all the nuances and, and, and all the facts and, and, and the context around it, that, that it would be more than just a, a lesson. But I pray today that as a result of our having opened your word, that we might leave this place different than when we came. And that your Holy Spirit might accomplish something in us that, that would lead to a, a continuous thirst for you, a continuous desire that we would recognize today could never be quenched by anything here on this earth. And so I ask, Lord, now that as we go to your word, that you would, your angels would surround this place, that, that, that they, would, they would prevent any distractions from drawing us away from what you want us to hear today. And that we might be able to, to focus with laser-like intensity on hearing from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So I want to spend a few minutes uh, together studying these couple of words before we, or verses before we draw out three points that I'm going to share with you. We're going to get to those three points a little later in the message, but I want us to look through this text together first of all. John opens this account with the words, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. So we immediately have to think about what after this is. What events is John talking about? Well, John has in the previous verses uh, outlined the fact that Jesus has been crucified, that his garments have been divided, that Jesus' mother, his aunt, and Mary Magdalene, along with the disciple that Jesus loved, are all there. And Jesus looks at the disciple that he loves and says to him, Behold your mother. And he looks at his mother and says, Behold your son. All of those things have just transpired before we receive this particular passage. But John says, Now after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. What was now finished? Well, we're going to look more at that next week, and we're going to talk about what was completed in this act of crucifixion and what Jesus is speaking about. But I want you to pause and consider this morning Jesus knowing. What does it mean by Jesus knew that all was finished? What's the importance of that? It's, it's what we call Jesus' omniscience. That's a fancy $5, I wouldn't say $2, but with inflation, it's a $5 word these days. It comes from our seminary studies. It basically means the all-knowing of God, of Jesus. John wants to make clear that none of this is a surprise to Jesus Christ. None of this was a surprise to him. You see, Jesus is the author of this story. He is the pre-existent God. He is the word that was with God in the beginning, John has already said, and the word that was made flesh. And while the Jewish leaders and the Romans thought that they were controlling Jesus' destiny in these moments, the reality is Jesus never once relinquished his throne. Never once relinquished his control and never once was surprised by the cruel and the heinous events of the crucifixion. How many of you are glad today that we serve a Savior who's never surprised? How many of you are glad that in the suffering and the circumstances of your life, God is never surprised by the things that happen to you? He's still in control and is fully aware of what is going on. Jesus in this moment is fully cognizant of what is happening to him and what will happen to him. He already knows. For John, this is an echo of previous situations where Jesus also knew. We're taken back to passages like John chapter 13, verse 3, where we're told that Jesus knew his hour had come and that he should be taken out of the world to the Father. We're reminded of passages like John chapter 18, verse 4, where, where we're told that Jesus knew everything that would happen to him. And now, here in this passage, Jesus knows that everything has come to an end. That he would, what he was sent to do on this earth was complete, and now his journey back to the Father could begin. Come back to the text again. So, so after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, John continues letting us know that Jesus speaks, and he does so to fulfill Scripture. Now, John doesn't tell us what Scripture he fulfills, and so there's been a lot of speculation about that. He only gives us the words that Jesus speaks. I thirst. 
While this is not a direct quotation of any single scripture, it takes us clearly into the realm of the Psalms. Passages like Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, where David writes, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. It echoes the sentiments of David in Psalm 63, where he writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. And so with those and other passages in mind, almost as a background music that's playing at the crucifixion, when Jesus speaks these words, he says, a word of longing, Jesus says, I thirst. Now in our English language, when we say I thirst, those are two words. But in the Greek, they're one word, dipso. And in the Aramaic, the word that Jesus probably spoke, as close as I could find, was a word that sounded something like shina. But in all three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and English, the meaning is basically the same. It's a word of desire. It's a word of longing. It's, it's a word that communicates an appetite for something that must be fulfilled. I thirst, says Jesus. John continues by telling us that a jar of sour wine was nearby. It stood there, and from what we know of crucifixions, a vessel was commonly located at the site for the purpose of quenching the thirst of soldiers. It was cheap, it was sour wine, and it was a common beverage that it was appreciated by laborers and soldiers because it relieved thirst very effectively and it was inexpensive. As such, this particular drink, this particular wine that is offered, was probably not a cruel, hostile gesture. It wasn't a corrosive vinegar offered as a cruel jest, but it was more than likely a common, refreshing drink of the people. Now, where it possibly became cruel, and this is only my speculation, is the means by which the wine was offered. We're told they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to Jesus' mouth. I, I really was hung up by that sponge and stick for quite a while as I studied this passage. And, and I wondered if there might be some significance to that. As I researched what a sponge on a stick would be used for in the Roman times, I was actually appalled at what I discovered. The xylospongium, or tersorium, was also known as a sponge on a stick, and it was used as a hygienic utensil by ancient Romans. And the only way to put this is they used it before the days of toilet paper. A sponge on a stick was a disgusting instrument. And if that's the case, it would not have at all been out of character for the soldiers to use an instrument like that. I'm not alone in biblical students who think that this might have been the instrument that they used to deliver that wine to Jesus' mouth. But even if that's the case, here's what I found refreshing and encouraging is, is the soldiers could not have understood the significance of the type of wood the stick was made of. It was made of hyssop. 
Hyssop is mentioned several times throughout the Bible. It's mentioned in passages like Exodus chapter 12, where the Hebrew children used it, do you remember, to apply blood over their doorpost in order that the angel of death might pass over them and they might escape the last and final plague in Egypt, the death of the firstborn. It was hyssop that applied that blood. Hyssop was used in connection with blood sacrifices to sprinkle that blood for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. Even David, after committing adultery and murder, cried out to God, Purge me with hyssop that I might be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, ultimately, hyssop came to represent God's compassion on his people and how through the act of sacrifice and God and cleansing, God reached down to mankind to save and to heal. I doubt the soldiers had any idea that by extending a branch of hyssop, they were actually referencing God's cleansing and healing power. They never intended for that to be communicated. And I wonder if those who stood there who understood the significance of hyssop were reminded of that time when the angel of death had passed over and how now the true Passover lamb was dying on the cross. And God, through that Passover lamb, was reaching down to heal and to save. Now we're going to draw out the meaning of these words, but before we do, I want to clearly identify three times that Jesus was offered wine on the cross because I think oftentimes we get these confused, and so, so we need to separate those out. The first is recounted in Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, and Mark chapter 15, verse 23. There at the beginning of the crucifixion, Jesus is offered wine mixed with gall, which had a narcotic effect. This was, done, this was done in order uh, to provide some sort of decreased sensitivity to the excruciating pain. The tradition is that there were mature, respected women in Jerusalem who would come out to crucifixions, have mercy on the criminals, and endeavor to offer them this type of wine in order to help um, numb, almost like an anesthetic, the pain they would experience. But Jesus refused that wine. He refused any shortcut, even a small one. Despite the terrible pain of the cross, he would not do anything to prevent experiencing the cross in all of its horror. The second time Jesus was offered wine was in Luke chapter 23. There the soldiers offered him sour wine, but we're told he also did not accept that wine. And the third and the final offer is the moment we've read of today, which is also mentioned in Matthew 27, 48, and Mark 15, 36, at the very end of the crucifixion. And in John, this third and final act of offering Jesus a drink comes as a result of Jesus' words, I thirst. As I studied this week, I couldn't escape the irony of these words. I want you to think about that irony for a moment. In Colossians 1.16, we're told that by Jesus Christ, all things were created that have been created. In heaven and on earth. 
And if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we learn the creation narrative of the seas and how they were divided, the waters were divided by none other than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now on the cross, Jesus, by whom and through him, whom all things have been created, the creator of the seas, the one who has already been told has been with us since the beginning, the one who hung the clouds in the sky and commands them when to release drops of water is thirsty. In John 4, we're told of a woman from Samaria. Do you remember her? Jesus meets her at the well and, and says to her, if you knew the gift of God, and you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The source of living water, the kind of water that quenches the soul, is thirsty. In John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus, on the last day of the feast, do you remember this? He stood up and he cried out these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now the one who inspires rivers of living water to, to flow out of mankind, he's thirsty. Do you sense the great irony? The creator of water, the source of living water, and the only one who can cause rivers of living water to, to spring up from within us hangs on a cross and is thirsty. How can this be? There must be more, I thought, to this simple word, to dip so, to shine, to I thirst. And may I suggest to you at least three levels on which you and I should understand these words. If you have your outline, this is where you're going to take those notes. Three things. First, if you follow along, this is a word of suffering. The words I thirst are words of suffering. Crucifixion and the severe beating that Jesus received would have caused him to go into hypovolemic shock. It's a medical condition that's brought on by extreme blood loss, and he would have lost a lot of blood from the brutal beating and the flagellation he had faced. He had received no treatment for his wounds. There were no blood transfusions or intravenous solutions to rehydrate him and relieve his pain, and every drop of blood that fell from his body down that cross and hit the sand beneath his feet would have increased his thirst exponentially. His mouth was dry, his tongue would have clung to the roof of his mouth, and his throat would have felt like sand. Every slow and deliberate breath would have been laced with pain. There's no doubt that these words are words of suffering. They serve and continue to serve as a reminder that Jesus did not take advantage of his divine power to quench his thirst. He could have done that and no one ever would have known. He could have felt that physical suffering and, and called upon angels and they could have ministered to him in that moment and no one ever would have known that his thirst had been relieved. But he didn't. Instead, he embraced that suffering for you and for me. This was a word of suffering. But it was more than that. It was also a word of submission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before, do you remember Jesus' prayer? Father, Father, he prayed, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. A cup that, that is to be drank. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Well, what was the Father's will? It was that the Son should drink 
the cup. Jeremiah describes that cup in chapter 25, verse 15, when, when he writes, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup that Jesus speaks of is the wrath of God, the curse of God, the judgment of God, and now God is asking his son to take up that cup and to drink it every last drop. On the cross that day, the son takes that cup, drinks it down, all the fury, all the wrath, all the curse of God for my sin and for your sin. He drinks it all. And in the drinking, he thirsted. We drink in order to satisfy our thirst. As he drank, like someone drinking salt water from the ocean, his thirst only intensified. You see, that's what the curse and the judgment of God do. We know that because in Luke chapter 16, Jesus described a rich man who died and went to hell and from his place of torment lifted his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus afar off. And he cried and said, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. And now on the cross, as Jesus bears the unimaginable weight of the sin of all humanity, the picture of his anguish is thirst. He thirsts, so you and I would never need to experience that kind of thirst. He drank the cup of anguish so we might be satisfied. I thirst. Not just a word of suffering, though it was, and not just a word of obedience to the Father's will, a word of submission, though it was. Finally, I would suggest to you a third level. It was also a word of desire. A word of desire. A close look at the Psalms I mentioned earlier lead us to the conclusion that Jesus' physical thirst was beside the point. Is it important to remember his physical suffering? Absolutely. But I am not impressed that he spoke those words so that we would know that he was suffering and that he desired H2O. Instead, I think Jesus' words were an indication that his thirst was for something so much deeper. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, in my opinion, is, is Psalm chapter 42, and it speaks of a profound thirst. David, David is, speaks of a thirst that's like a deer that pants for water. There was a little chorus when I was growing up. You probably remember that chorus that speaks these beautiful words. Well, the context of that passage is that David wrote this while he was running from his son Absalom, who wanted to kill him, who wanted to overthrow his throne. And an experienced hunter and outdoorsman, David expressed his exhaustion and his desire in the metaphor of a deer who pants for water. Now, here's the thing about deer. They only pant for water when they are being chased by a predator. As soon as a deer escapes and knows it's safe, it will immediately look for water to replenish its depleted inner stores. David, unlike a deer who must hunt for water, knows exactly where to go to replenish his source. He goes to his shepherd, to his God. And now Jesus, like David of old, has been pursued by his enemies, but Jesus has been pursued by his enemies all the way to the cross, and he knows exactly where to go to have his thirst quenched. He goes to his Father. You see, when Jesus said, I thirst, 
he wasn't merely speaking of a physical thirst. Such a thirst would have been well within his ability to control. And he wasn't merely speaking of a desire to finish the cup of God's wrath, though he was. His words spoke of both, but there was, it still seems, still another meeting. A desire for a refreshment of his dry soul. A desire for communion finally perfected with God the Father. Knowing that his work on this earth was done, he could finally focus on his home going and on his reunion with his Father in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I don't know if you've ever been around a dear saint when they died, when they passed into glory, but I have several times. There's something peaceful. There's something hopeful, something beautiful about the end of a dear Christian's life. When that person who's dying knows that they are about to go and be with the Lord. There's a sense of completion, a sense of peace about the life they are leaving behind, and a sense of anticipation and joy about the life that is to come. I couldn't help but think of those times when I had seen that in someone as I thought about these words of Jesus on the cross. Knowing everything is now finished, cries out, I thirst. Let me ask you something. If a Christian who has never experienced heaven and has, throughout their entire life, lived by faith, not by sight. If a Christian can be so passionate and peaceful and so full of such desire and thirst for a place they have never seen, how much more must Jesus have desired to go home, to be with his Father once again? I thirst. A word of suffering, a word of submission, and a word of desire. As we prepare to close this morning, can I ask you, are you thirsty? Are you willing to drink the cup of suffering that he drank? That was the question that, that Jesus asked of, of the sons of Zebedee when their mother came to him and said, give me a place of honor for my two sons in your kingdom. And Jesus said to them, are you willing to drink of that cup? You will drink of my cup, he said. We want to drink his cup when it's pleasant. We want to drink his cup when it's full of victory. We want to drink his cup of blessing. There are any number of churches this morning where you can go to hear about that cup of blessing he wants for you. The problem is he wants you to drink of his cup of suffering as well as his cup of blessing. And we will, like 1 Peter 4.13 tells us, we will suffer, but we ought to rejoice, Peter says, when we suffer for Christ. Perhaps rather than complaining about the experiences of life, rather than complaining about suffering when we face it, rather than saying that it's unfair or it's unjust, perhaps rather than asking why God, when we endure pain, maybe, just maybe, we should consider it pure joy. Whenever we suffer, even if it's just a minuscule amount in comparison to the suffering of Christ. And do you thirst for God's will to be accomplished in your life, even if it's not easy, even if it's challenging, even if it requires sacrifice, even if it requires you walking down a path that you would prefer not to tread? Do you, like Jesus, pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? Let me accomplish the mission you want for my life, not the one that I think I want. 
Are you willing to lay aside your ambitions, your dreams, your hopes, and take up the cup, whatever it is he's calling you to do? Do you thirst so much for him that you desire his will above all else? And finally, do you hunger and thirst for God himself? Does your soul long for communion with him? Is he your greatest desire? Is he your most pressing need? Is he the first thing you think of when you wake up and the last thing on your mind before you go to sleep? Do your knees hit the floor before your feet hit the ground? Do you really desire God that much? Until you realize he alone is the source of water that will forever quench your thirst and the only place from which you can gain real fulfillment, you'll continue to run to all the wrong places and you'll continue endeavoring to quench your thirst in all the wrong ways. I want to close with a story. In the classic French film, Jean de Florette, townspeople in a small village in Provence, France, conspire against a local landowner named Jean, who has just inherited a plot of land. You see, they want to force John's little farm to, to fail so they can possess the land. The land receives only scant rainfall, so they sneak onto his property and they plug up a healthy stream, cementing it shut and covering it with dirt. So he won't even know it exists. John doesn't know about this spring, but he knows of another, more distant water supply over a mile away. He initially makes progress, but he eventually, throughout the film, getting, he grows tired getting this water and dragging it from the distant spring. It becomes a back-breaking experience. And sadly, he never discovers that he has already has an inexhaustible supply of water nearby. Tragically, many of us are like Jean in this film. We spend our lives in back-breaking effort trying to haul fulfillment and satisfaction into our lives from other sources. We walk right by the source of living water, and we instead settle for sources of fulfillment that can never bring true satisfaction. My friends, if you'll look up a hill, a hill shaped like a skull, one on which blood fell down a cross. And if you'll hear the cry of a first century Jewish rabbi, you'll meet one who experienced a thirst that we deserved in order that we might be granted a satisfaction he alone can provide. How thirsty are you? Would you pray with me?